This past year, I read the 2013 Nobel Prize-winning novel, The Goldfinch, by Donna Tartt. Now, if you're not familiar with the story or its film adaptation, I'm not even really trying to summarize it for you. For one, it's about 800 pages long, and I've only got 30 minutes to speak. And what's more, many reviewers have described it as Dickensian in style. It's got all these plots and subplots and orphans and ne'er-do-wells. It's worthy of a Great Expectations or the old curiosity shop. But I want to tell you enough to kind of set the stage for the quote that I'm about to read to you. So Theo Decker is the main character, and he's a narrator of his own story. So he was orphaned at the age of 13 when terrorists bombed the Metropolitan Museum of Art while he and his mom were visiting. She died... He escaped, and in the midst of getting out of the rubble, he rescued a Dutch masterpiece called the Goldfinch. And this stolen painting becomes the iconic link between Theo and his beloved mother. As he grows up, he spends some time with his kind of deadbeat dad in Vegas. And while he's in Vegas, he's befriended by a street-smart Ukrainian kid named Boris. And Theo and Boris become almost like brothers. They're later separated, and then they reunite as adults to try and retrieve the goldfinch, which has been stolen. Okay, so in this conversation I'm about to share with you, Boris is trying to get Theo to see that Theo's dad wasn't all bad, that people are more complicated than that. They're not just bad or good people. And he's also, Boris is also trying to get Theo to see how Good can sometimes come out of bad situations. Now, Boris is not religious at all, but he decides that the best way he can explain this to Theo is by means of a Bible story. So Boris says to Theo, this Bible story, you know, the one where the steward steals the widow's might. But then the steward flees to the far-off country, and he invests the might wisely, and he brings back a thousand-fold cash to the widow that he stole it from. And with joy, she forgave him, and they killed the fatted calf and made merry. <laughs> At which Theo, echoing all our sentiments, says, I think that's maybe not all the same story. <laughs> Well, I, like, I like Boris's eclectic version of the parable of the prodigal son because it demonstrates in a humorous sort of way that the adaptability and the flexibility of the parable itself. It's one of those archetypical narratives that kind of spans times and cultures and even religions because really, what is it? It's a homecoming story. A person goes away. A person is gone for a long time. A person comes home. The question is, what kind of homecoming are they going to receive? Now, I don't think it's too simplistic to say that the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to make sure that people know what kind of God is waiting for them when they get back home. Now, I belong to that, as Dave was mentioning, I belong to that kind of backward, strange breed of Christians who think that the Old Testament is God's greatest gift to humanity. So given the opportunity to speak to a group, I almost always take us back to the good old days <laughs> when paying bridal dowries with Philistine foreskins 
and arguing with talking donkeys was just another day on the job. And tonight's presentation is no exception, though I give you my word, there will be no more mention of foreskins. <laughs> so let's go back to two earlier versions of the parable of the prodigal son, both from the Old Testament. And as we do, I want us to see how both of these stories ultimately fall apart. Not because they're bad stories, they're actually great stories, but because in one case, the grace that is given seems untrustworthy. And in the other case, because the grace that's given is unkind and forced and frigid. So we're going to start out with Jacob. Now, I have a book coming out about Jacob this summer entitled Limping with God, so I've spent a whole lot of time thinking about him and digging into this man's life. And I've got to say, you know, Jacob's reputation of being a conniving and deceiving and the universe revolves around me jerk, well, that reputation is verifiably true. <laughs> he is. And for that reason, I decided to use him as the model of discipleship. He is the mirror of all of us failing and fickle and fumbling messes whom God so weirdly and passionately loves. Now, I assume that you all know the gist of Jacob's story. He's the younger twin brother of Harry Esau. He's mama's favorite. You know the story about the lentil soup and the first recorded instance of identity theft and the wrath of the older brother and his flight to Mesopotamia. And I'm assuming you certainly all know him waking up post-wedding night with both a headache hangover and the wrong sister. And then you have his fast-growing collection of wives and co-wives and a whole passel of kids, at least one of whom is caught sleeping with the mom of his half-brothers. Obviously, this is kind of vintage soap opera material. And I always like to point out, this right here, this dysfunctional family, was the church back then. I guess it turns out that the more the church changes, the more it stays the same. Well, 20 years have passed since this prodigal Jacob, having obtained the blessing of his father and left behind his older brother, took his journey into a far-off country. But there, instead of wasting his substance in riotous living, he grew rich in livestock and servants. And now he's headed home. The only unresolved question is, what kind of homecoming is it going to be? It's not dear old dad that Jacob has to worry about. It's his older brother Esau, whose last recorded words 20 years before were these, I will kill my brother Jacob. Those six words are not something that you want living rent-free in your head for 20 years, but evidently they did in Jacob's. And when Jacob gets back and his runners return to him with news that Esau is not only coming his way, but he's coming with 400 men, which by the, which by the way in the Bible is the size of a military force. When the runners come back with this message, well, let's just say that Jacob probably starts going through a whole lot of toilet paper. <laughs> the Bible puts it this way. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, I would assume that he was. If revenge is a dessert best served cold, then Esau's had had 20 full years to chill. 
Now, as much as I hate to skim over some of these juicy, juicy details, we're going to have to cut to the chase. The capital D day has arrived. Jacob has sent parties, several parties ahead of him with gifts to give to Esau to kind of curry the favor of his older brother. You see, even though it had been on his shelf, Jacob had not yet gotten around to reading Paul Zoll's book, Grace in Practice. So he wasn't much of a believer in one-way love. Transactionalism was Jacob's theology. His favorite three Latin words were quid, pro, quo. I give Esau a bunch of my stuff. Jacob lets me live, I mean, Esau lets me live a few more years to enjoy my stuff. Well, finally, the moment arrives. You remember this? I got to say, this is, this is, for me, one of the most gripping displays in the Bible of human love. Jacob approaches, and we read Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Here is true brotherly compassion. Here is unexpected grace. Here is un, un, unearned and undeserved love. And Jacob did not believe it. You see, he was certainly relieved that his head was still attached to the rest of his body. He's even emotional, even though, not to get into the finer points of the Hebrew, but there are a number of scholars, including me, who believe that the latter part of that verse would better be translated, and not they wept, but and he, Esau, wept. But leaving that aside, how do we know that he didn't believe it? Because right after the reunion, Esau says to Jacob, basically, hey, brother, come home with me. Come south with me. Bring all of your wives and your co-wives and your kids and your animals. Let's go south. And Jacob basically says to him, love the idea, brother. That's great. Tell you what, we'll go on ahead of us. We'll catch up because we have the kids and the animals. They're just going to slow us down. And no sooner did Jacob and his 400 men dip below the southern horizon before Jacob and his entourage turned around and headed north. Because Jacob seemed to suspect that Esau's magnanimity is a masquerade. And I do have to admit that in my own Jacobian heart, I kind of sympathize a little bit with this perspective. You see, the homecoming was certainly sweeter than anything that Jacob could have imagined, but Jacob had a human heart, and he knew that his brother also had a human heart. And if human hearts are anything, they are fickle things, untrustworthy things. So however much this returning prodigal may have wanted to believe that his brother's absolution was sincere, it was still one sinner forgiving another sinner. This, this story, this story of the prodigal son, falls apart because the forgiver had a possible vested interest in the reconciliation. See, at a bare minimum, there were just too many unknowns because Esau didn't come alone to meet Jacob. He brought this 400 men with him. Why did he do that? And Jacob had sent all these gifts ahead of him. Did those influence his brother in any way? And when Esau left home, was he, did he leave home with a heart to forgive? Or maybe did something change along the way? And Esau himself, was he maybe suspicious of his brother's motives? I said, like I said, it's too many unknowns. What we do know is that when all was said and done, there was a fly 
and the Chardonnay of this absolution. When lost souls, including our own, come home, what we truly need is a welcoming absolution who stands, a welcoming absolver, a forgiver, who stands to gain nothing by our homecoming but sheer joy. A forgiveness that's not a means to an end, but is the end itself. If, if it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, then it is for forgiveness that we have been forgiven. You see, God isn't glad to have us back so that he can hand us a to-do list. And God isn't glad to have us back so that he can take us into his office and have us have a kind of a sit-down lecture about our past misbehavior. He's simply laughing, and he's weeping tears of joy. We're home, period. So the story of the Jacob prodigal, it's a great story, but it's not quite the story that we need. So let's keep looking. Maybe there's something later in the biblical narrative that'll work. Let's move on to a not-so-well-known incident in the life of David. And let me pause here in a minute for just kind of a, a warning. I'm going to warn you that if you read the Bible, it's seriously going to undermine your faith in humanity. <laughs> so if you have a high view of humanity, you probably want to steer clear of the scriptures for a while. For the last couple of years, my co-host in the podcast, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, Dan Price, and I have been, we worked our way through the life of, through the life of David. And we came to realize in, in, a, in, a very, in a very complete sense that this man after God's own heart was also a man who spent a great deal of time going after the things of his own heart. So if you insist on reading the Bible, you've been forewarned. Now, to the life of David. David, as you might know, was never a man short on wives, and so he was also never a father short on kids. His oldest son was named Amnon. Now, Amnon had become infatuated with his beautiful half-sister, Tamar. And through some twisted schemery that we're not going to get into, Amnon faked a sickness, and he asked his dad, David, to send his sister, Tamar, in to nurse him back to health. And David, who otherwise seemed to be a pretty smart guy, is always taken in by his kids for some reason. And when Tamar was all alone with her half-brother Amnon, he raped her. And immediately after the assault, he was disgusted by her. The Bible says he hated her and basically threw her out onto the street where she went weeping back home. The matter becomes known to David, and we're told that he was upset about this. So what did he do? Nothing. He didn't do anything. But somebody else did. Another son of David, Absalom, who was also the full brother of Tamar, well, he waited two full years after the rape, and then he sought vengeance. Or was it justice? Either way, he got Amnon drunk, and he had the rapist struck down. Amnon was dead, and Absalom, fearing reprisal, fled. Now, if Jacob stole his older brother's birthright, then Amnon stole his older brother's 
life. Jacob ended up in the far-off country of Haran. Absalom's going to end up in the far-off country of Geshur. And once again, we are facing that question that looms large in this story. What kind of homecoming? What kind of homecoming is Absalom going to receive? If there's going to be a homecoming at all. Well, there is. But if Tolstoy is right that all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, well, then David's unhappy family expressed its unhappiness in making love a cold formality. Through the connivance of David's fixer, a guy by the name of Joab, Absalom is finally permitted to return to Jerusalem after three years of exile in his far-off country. So what happens when this prodigal son comes home? Listen to these two verses from 2 Samuel. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And while Absalom was still a long way off, David, his father, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Just kidding. That's not what happened at all. Just testing y'all to see if you're paying attention. So this is actually what happened. So Joab brought Absalom to Jerusalem, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house. It did not come into his king's presence. No embrace. No bring out the best robe. No welcome home barbecue. Now we're not done with this parable. Two more years pass. It's been five years since David last saw his son Absalom. And finally, through Joab's influence, once again, David agrees to meet his prodigal son. And here's what happened. We're told that this son came to the king. Now note the formality. He came to the king. It doesn't say he came to his father. And that Absalom bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. David didn't even leave his throne. And it says he came to the king. So the son comes to the father. The father doesn't come to the son. And then finally we read that the king kissed Absalom. But given everything we know about this story, I suspect that kiss held all the warmth of a February ice storm. Now, if you know the rest of the story, what happened immediately after this? Not a party, but a coup. It seems to me that what Absalom, Absalom had wanted all along was for his father to do something. To comfort his daughter to punish her rapist, to ask Absalom to come back home, to reconcile with him. Absalom didn't need a king. He needed a dad. And he didn't get it. And when he didn't get that, when he got ignored and punished and kept at a distance and finally forced, he got an audience with the king with this cold and formalized forgiveness. Absalom basically lifted his middle finger to David and all that he stood for. Absalom basically said to himself, well, if my father is such a pitiful example of a king, then I can do a whole lot better. David's decision not to be a forgiving, welcoming father created an embittered son who ended up tearing the kingdom in two. Our world is populated with Absaloms. Every one of their stories is different, but... Many found waiting for them back home someone who's a lot like David. 
They didn't discover the, the kindness of grace, but it's mere formality. Or maybe they found, to their dismay, that when they came back to a church, that all sins in that church are created equal, but some are more equal than others. They got home from the far-off country only to find the Father would welcome them back if they did A, B, C, and D, and then proved over time that they were sincerely repentant. The God they found waiting for them back home might have been a king, but he was no dad. Jacob found a forgiving brother when he returned home, but that reconciliation was kind of spoiled by fears that it wasn't genuine. Absalom found a a formalized and cold father when he returned home, and that lack of reconciliation led to Absalom's coup, his subsequent death, and David's famous weeping over the death of the son whose death he largely brought about. Two stories, two prodigal sons, both of which serve us well when we think about how they compare and contrast with the story that Jesus himself told. Now, what makes this comparison all the more compelling is that many scholars are convinced, myself included, that Jesus purposely modeled the parable of the prodigal son after the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, the reason that's important is because all the similarities and the differences between them are quite purposeful. Jesus didn't kind of make this parable up out of scratch, but he constructed it out of the building blocks of the Genesis narrative. And that means that he twisted this narrative at key points to shock us with the nature of the parable itself. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Jacob and the younger son in the parable that Jesus told leave home for the far-off country already the children of the Father. I don't know that that had ever dawned on me until recently. They're not strangers. When they go off to the far-off country, they are already children of the Father. They're not strangers. I think this is striking. Objectively, they've already been made part of the family. Objectively, they've already received the blessing of the inheritance. God has already made them his children. Whether they, want, whether they like it or not, whether they want to believe it or not, whether they want to live that way or not, they're his kids already. The father has done this irrevocably. And this is exactly why in every lost and wandering soul, there's a homelessness of the heart. Every time the people talk about being lost and searching and trying to find their place in this world, whether they realize it or not, they're giving testimony that they miss their family. They yearn for our Father. They're craving a place at the family table. They miss what they can't even remember having, the home that they maybe have never inhabited, but to which God is calling them back. And this helps to explain that feverish attempt to dress up the far-off country as if it's the father's home. And this, of course, as David's pointed out, this is why we see the religionizing of everything. The creeds of wokeness, the high priest of political parties, greater reverence for the flag and for the cross. All of these are nothing more than symptoms of people who are trying to scratch a religious itch that won't go away. Next thing to notice is how Jesus upends the story of the prodigal son. And this is the part that I love. 
So in Genesis, Jacob leaves with nothing but the staff in his hand, right? But he comes back, a rich man, he comes back with all these wives and co-wives and kids and herds. I mean, he is rich by ancient standards. He left with nothing, and he comes back full. But when Jesus parabolizes this story, he turns everything around and upside down. He won't let the prodigal son stop at every UPS store on the way back and send an overnight package full of riches to his dad to show him how well he's done in the far-off country. He won't let him pull the, the Jacob trick and send gifts to Esau to grease the wheels of forgiveness. Jesus brings him back empty at the end of his rope. And this is where things get dangerous. This is where things get so radically un-American that every time this is preached, I'm shocked that the preacher survives. I'm shocked that the preacher's not drug out of the pulpit and stoned with copies, hardcover copies, of every self-help book that's ever been published. Because in what other sphere of life do things work this way? When we are at our very best, when we don't have anything. So if I join a gym and I hire a trainer, of course, she works with what I already have to make me better. She doesn't look at me and say, hmm, looks like you've got absolutely nothing to work with. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Or if I attend university, the professors, they build on my past education and experience to expand my knowledge. They don't look at me and say, so I see that you have a diseased and utterly worthless brain. Just what we're looking for. Perfect. But when it comes to our Lord, the less Jacob-like we are and the more prodigal-like we are, the better. And no one says this better than Martin Luther. In his commentary on the Magnificat, he puts it this way. He says, God is the kind of Lord who will break what is whole and make whole what is broken. He goes on to say this, even now and to the end of the world, all God's works are such that out of that which is nothing, worthless, despised, wretched, and dead, God makes that which is something, precious, honorable, blessed, and living. On the other hand, whatever is something, precious, honorable, blessed, and living, he makes to be nothing, worthless, despised, wretched, and dying. Why? Luther says, because just as God in the beginning of creation made the world out of nothing, so his manner of working continues unchanged to this day. So in Genesis 1.1, the die is cast for how God will always work with us. The more nothing we are, the more God has to work with. But here's where we run into human comedy. Because when God brings us home, every single one of us thinks that we're going to impress God in some way. Jacob had his flocks and his herds. The prodigal son, of course, had his master plan of becoming a servant and kind of working and weaseling his way back into the Father's good graces over time. And others of us, maybe we think when we come to our Lord, he'll be impressed with our PhDs or our profitable companies whereby we can bankroll the kingdom, or our social standing whereby we can improve the image of the church. And so others of us think that by sin bragging about our rap sheets and our pornographic past, 
we will thereby enhance the image of God as merciful even to the likes of me. You see, none of us want to have nothing to offer, so we place on our Lord's altar either our sin or our righteousness. And all the while we're engaged in this comedy, either of self-adulation or self-flagellation, our Father, what does He do? He just stands there, head thrown back, laughing a great big belly laugh at us and hopefully with us. Esau, back to that story, Esau was puzzled by all this stuff that Jacob threw his way. Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob says, oh, it was, it was to find favor in your sight, my Lord. And Esau says to him, I love this line, I've got enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And when Jesus retold this story, when he cast the father in the role of who? Esau, which is shocking. The father is like Esau. When Jesus retells this story, of course, he, he interrupts the orchestrated confession of the prodigal midway with the father saying, quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf, get the barbecue going because my son who was dead is alive again. My son who was lost is now found. We're going to have a party. As if to say, what do you mean, son, by all this confession that you offer? Enough. Keep your words to yourself. Ain't nobody got time to hear more of your confession. The beer's on ice. The grill's about to be full of steaks. And get those nasty pig-feeding rags off of you and dress like my son. You see, when Jesus gets us to the point of the story, he's taken the early parable of the prodigal Jacob and the prodigal Absalom, and he's transformed them into the story that he wanted all along. Unlike Jacob, who went north when his brother invited him to go south, in this parable, the son who comes home walks hand in hand with his father into the party of the century. And unlike Absalom, whose father sat on his cold, regal backside while forcing his son to grovel before him, this father scans the horizon. He's looking for his son. And when he sees him, he does what no Jewish father would ever do. He runs. And he doesn't just run, but he embraces him. And he kisses him and welcomes his long-lost son home. About 15 years ago, when I was in my mid-30s, I came home from a far-off country to my dad. I showed up on my parents' front porch for my own homecoming. And like Jacob and Absalom and the younger brother, I wasn't sure exactly what kind of homecoming I was going to receive. After all, I had quite publicly ruined my life. And I am certain that everybody in my hometown had heard through the grapevine within like 23 minutes uh, what the son of Carson and Jeanette Bird had done in that far-off country of Indiana. <laughs> At the time, I was living alone. I was engaged in self-loathing, confused, kind of clawing my way through the gutter to what I thought was going to be an extremely dismal future. When I walked through the front door, I walked into the arms of my parents who fed my hungry soul with love. And over the next few months, 
my dad and I <clears throat> spent lots of time together. We talked about the new truck driving job that I had. We talked about my kids. We talked about his horses. But the one thing that we never talked about were my failures. He never asked me why I'd gone and blown up my life in that far off country. He never said to me, son, what the hell were you thinking? Never once did he bring it up. Never once did he even come remotely close to an interrogation of my many life-destroying sins. You see, he could see my pain scratched and scarred all over my life. He knew that I didn't need the law or a lecture. I needed love. So what did he do? He welcomed me home. He embraced me. He showed an ongoing interest in the ways that I was trying to carve out a new space for myself in this world. And above all, he showed me unconditional love. Instead of asking me to dig up my past, he helped me build a future. The church's calling is to make sure that people know what kind of father is waiting for them when they get back home. And the church is here to build a future for those sons and daughters to come home to. What kind of future? A future with a father who never unforgives anybody. A future with a father who says that if your right eye causes you to look with disdain upon a returning prodigal, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better to enter into the joy of the absolution party half blind than with both eyes to stand glaring at a distance beside the older brother. A future with a father who is too busy throwing forgiveness parties for his children to think about lecturing them about their past mistakes. And a future with a father whose defining act, and I mean the defining act, past, present, and future, as to exactly who this God is, that defining act was him sending his own son into the far-off country of the jaws of death itself in order that in his resurrection return he might bring all of us lost sons and daughters back home to himself let me tell you when self-sacrifice is the defining act of God well then that's all you need to know about what kind of God is waiting for you back home Thank you.